Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors at the church here. I'm glad you're here too. It's good to be together. Um, we're in the midst of a series that's taking us through uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. It's called uh, Romans Unashamed of the Gospel. And we're in our uh, third installment of that. So we're still kind of in, the, in chapter one. We're about halfway through. Um, and, and so far in chapter one, we've, we've kind of covered uh, the introductory material. Paul introduced himself to the Romans in a, in a kind of countercultural way. I won't rehearse all that again, but he kind of made a break from the culture even in his introduction. And then uh, last week we focused on what really is the central theme of the letter. And Paul intends that right after the introduction, he states his, his main thing, which really is the heart of the Christian faith, that, uh, that in, the, in the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And that, that means not just that God is righteous and perfect as, as we already know, but that in Jesus, God wants to make us whole uh, unbroken, again, righteous, just like God is. And that by grace, uh, through faith, human beings can be made righteous again. And not just kind of better, but as if we never experienced any brokenness in this world, made, made perfect again. It's an, it's an amazing thing. So that's, that's the central theme uh, of, of the whole letter. And then Paul kind of turns a corner in the passage that we have today and he starts to unpack that central theme and he'll spend the next seven chapters doing that. And our our passage today begins with the phrase, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So there's a very clear corner that has been turned here. The the first half talks about the good news of God and, and why the good news is so good and suddenly Paul shifts now to the wrath of God. Basically what he's doing is he's, he's saying, look, to understand just how good the good news is, we have to really understand how bad the bad news is. And much like a state of the union address, Paul presents here a state of the world address. And the world apart from God is not in a good state. It's not just kind of bad, it's really bad. And we... All of us, each and every one, are part of the problem. And that's kind of the point of this passage. Uh, that, that the bad news of sin and its effects are bad news for every single human being everywhere. Uh, and, and right at the front end of this, before we read the scripture, I want to acknowledge uh, that there's going to be a tension, probably, you'll feel. There'll be a tension in the room because this passage includes a couple verses that talk about same-sex sexual practice. And it goes without saying that's a hot-button topic in our culture today. And I want to acknowledge that right at the front end um, and, and confess that in large measure the church has not handled this well. You know, we've acted like same-sex attraction is an issue when what we're really talking about is people. We can never separate those two things. The church is guilty of having been unloving, unkind in some corners of the church, openly hostile toward people who are seeking the Lord in the midst of their greatest life question. Uh, We've been controlled by fear in many parts, impacted by homophobia 
and more interested in winning an argument than speaking as an ambassador of Jesus in all situations. And you can tell what uh, this conversation, which place this conversation holds in our hearts by how quiet we all are right now, right? This is a very real thing and it impacts people. Not just those people, it impacts us. People we know and love, all of us. Uh, this, a cu- these couple verses have been referred to as some, I'm talking about verses 26 and 27 in the text we'll read here, have been referred to as the clobber passages. Meaning that sometimes Christians have picked these couple verses up as a baseball bat to bludgeon gay people. Let me assure you that is not going to happen today. Um, this primarily is not a sermon about same-sex attraction because this is primarily not a text about same-sex attraction, but it comes up and I have to name it because we have to defuse the bomb in the room to adequately address the text. Uh, So, no matter where you are regarding your sexuality, you are welcome here. No matter where you are regarding your greed, you are welcome here. No matter where you are regarding your pride, you are welcome here. Jesus welcomes people and invites all of us everywhere to turn to him. So we come to him, praying, show us Christ, Lord. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. So even though the hot button verses are part of the passage, it's not really about that. It's a much larger reality. So I invite all of us to choose to listen to the whole text, not get stuck on a couple verses. As Christians, of course, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And the inner witness of the Spirit confirms that this is, this is God's book. Right? We, we know that. Uh, and, and that the apostle was carried along by the Holy Spirit in, in writing these words. And God is good. Right? The central theme of the book states that God is so highly invested to the point of being willing to lay down his own life to make us whole again, to make us unbroken again like God is. That's, that's the heart of the entire gospel. So we come to the text of scripture with faith in a God who proved to us in Jesus that he has our best interest in mind. So with that, let's listen to the scripture. The first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Randy. A weak view of sin simply will not do. I mean, the shift in tone could not be clearer. We move from good news of God to wrath of God. But before we dive into unpacking the wrath of God, which we need to do because it makes us twitchy, right? Uh, There's a collision of worldviews we need to acknowledge. In in studying Romans, we are going to experience a massive collision of worldviews. We live in a culture that assumes, rather without question, that the propositions of secular humanism are true. And you and I are being impacted by this culture in significant ways, probably more than we know and in ways we don't fully understand. A secular humanism is a system of belief, secular, denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. Humanism, an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. And when you put them together, secular humanism is humanism, especially regarding the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without God or belief in God. The faith of our culture is that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without God or belief in God. I mean, that, that thought, that subtext, that underlying idea is everywhere. It, it really is the cultural water in which we s- swim. It's an assumption, almost taken for granted. Uh, back in, I think it was the late 1700s, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in his social contract, wrote this. Man was born free and everywhere he is in chains. In his letter to the Romans, the apostle Paul says exactly the opposite that human beings are born in chains 
slaves to sin, and that the good news of God is that Jesus came to set us free, to rescue us from an utterly hopeless situation. And there's the collision. I mean, it's a collision of stories seeking to describe what's really going on in the world, because that's what a worldview is. So we ask, which story is right? Or even abandoning right and wrong, which story is better? Meaning, which story more accurately describes what's really going on in our lives and this world? Are we born free, simply imprisoned by our circumstances, that which happens to us, yet all the while capable of morality and self-fulfillment in our own strength and effort? That's secular humanism. Or are we born in slavery, imprisoned by our own sinful nature and wholly incapable of rescuing ourselves? That's the Christian message about human beings. And and Paul's purpose here in this passage is not to debate an interesting idea. His purpose is to scour from the bathtub of our worldview every last bit of secular humanist residue. And he's not using soft scrub. He brought in a 3,000 PSI power washer and he wants to strip it all off. In fact, this whole section of Romans, from Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, is a devastating depiction of human depravity. The Apostle Paul wants there not to remain even the slightest inkling in us that, oh, we're kind of good, like it's not that bad. And thus he begins with this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I'm firmly convinced that we as Christians get twitchy when we hear about the wrath of God only because we don't understand what it really means. So when we talk about the wrath of God, sometimes we have this image of God up in heaven zapping people, like just Okay, I'm taking him out. And I, I, I rather prefer this description from another pastor. God's wrath is not like human wrath. It's not bad temper so that he might fly off the handle at any moment. It's neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable and it is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Further, it is not the impersonal outworking of retribution in society. Or or put another way, God's wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility toward evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. So if, if you've been concerned about this phrase, the wrath of God, thinking it makes God angry and a people zapper, You really don't need to be. In fact, the wrath of God is a good thing for which we should be grateful because God is perfect. He always reacts to evil in the same way because evil is actually evil, not just somebody's opinion that something's bad. If God did not react to evil in the same consistent way each and every time, Can you imagine the horror of that world? We would not want to live in that world. 
So the wrath of God, God's firm commitment against evil is a invaluable thing to us as human beings. At the end of the day, God loves people and refuses to compromise with our evil. This is what makes God good, right? And our evil suppresses the truth that has been revealed to everyone everywhere. Paul continues, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. John Calvin called the world the theater of God's glory. Meaning, when we step out the door every morning, we step into a theater, a theater that's constantly displaying the glory of God. We can see God's glory in creation. Theologians call this general revelation. Uh, that is the knowledge of God which is available to all through the natural order. You know, we can't come to know the details of the gospel by looking at a beautiful sunrise. But we can come to know God's eternal power and divine nature. You know, this is the go outside and look up argument. I mean, the, the world reveals there is a God who is powerful. As a person who came to faith later in life, I kind of went through this uh, conversion with regard to how we came to be. And one quote that was quite compelling for me was this, to believe that the earth and, and everything in it happened by chance over a, a a huge period of time would be akin to believing that a tornado could sweep through a junkyard and inadvertently assemble a Boeing 747. There's something fundamentally obvious that is clear to every human being everywhere. General revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. There, there's something about God that's obvious to everyone everywhere. And because these things may be known about God, no one can use the I didn't know excuse. Because we did. We did. And the real problem is that we knew these things about God in the general revelation sense now and turned away from God anyway. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. We exchanged the glory of God for images we created. And this is This is idolatry. An idol is anything we love and pursue in place of God. It's a good day, you get two Calvin quotes today. Man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Meaning, our hearts continually churn out things to which we kneel and pledge allegiance. 
all the time. Boom, 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 boom. You know, I, I hope we all understand in this room that idolatry is not about whether you have a little wood carving on your mantle to which you pray. It's about what's at the center of your, your life, what's at the center for you. Idolatry is a matter of primary allegiance. It's not as simple as good and bad. It's about what takes first place in our hearts, the center around which our lives orbit. Is it God or something else? And the problem is that we, humanity, traded God for a collection of cheap trinkets. That was a bad trade, a horrible trade. We chose idolatry. And says one theologian, the history of the world confirms that idolatry tends to immorality, meaning a false image of God leads to a false image of life and the most precious things in it. And so starts the next verse. Therefore, God gave them over. What does that mean? Kind of like the wrath of God. What does it mean that God would give someone over? Earlier in the passage, we talked about God's wrath being revealed from heaven. We, we hear that and tend to think the zapping thing again, but that view isn't quite right. Rather, God's wrath operates not by God's intervention, but precisely by his not intervening, by letting men and women, human beings, go their own way according to their own desires. See, one expression of God's wrath is in God handing sinners over to themselves, allowing us stubborn-hearted people to pursue our own willful self-centeredness. I mean, this is how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. You know, it's not a giant army or something. It's the unfolding of unhealthy desires pursued in a human life. And, And the very real hell on earth that comes from that. And the rest of the passage that we read today is all about that to which God released us in our willful self-centeredness. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women who were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gave us over to ourselves. You know, and our desire for sex. A false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex. And a society's sexual ethic can serve as a gauge of its idolatry. Right? Malcolm Muggeridge, the, the, the rather well-known British journalist, said this, if God is dead, meaning if God's not at the center, if there's an idol there instead, if God is dead, somebody's going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania. The drive for power or the drive for pleasure. The clenched fist or the phallus. Hitler or Hugh Hefner. It's quite the quote, isn't it? (laughs) Gladly, Romans is clearer than Muggeridge. It's not an either or. It's a both and. 
If we trade God for an idol, it won't be power or pleasure, but power and pleasure. Hitler and Hefner. An embrace of pleasure and a pursuit of power, a giving over to sexual impurity and a giving over to a depraved mind such that people do what ought not to be done on every level. A weak view of sin simply will not do. I I think we can say this too. When we trade God for an idol, a leading indicator will be the collapse of sexual ethics. By sexual impurity, the Bible in general means the misuse of sex. You know, illicit sexual activity, the use of pornography, other sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage for for which sex was intended. It's also true that sexual attraction is not sin. We don't control our attractions. We don't choose our attractions, largely. We control what we do with them. I mean, think outside the realm of sexuality for a moment. If we're tempted to do something we know to be wrong, we don't consider that temptation to be sin. We consider acting upon that temptation to be sin. So in general, sexual impurity in the Bible refers to some inappropriate expression of our sexuality. Now, from my seat on the bus, I don't know about you, but from my seat on the bus, there seems no doubt that our culture has gone off the rails sexually. And there's misuse of sex everywhere. And this, and this isn't me pointing the finger at those people out there or at you here. I am guilty of sexual impurity. I'm guilty of struggle in this area. Living with sexual purity in this world is really, really hard. But because it's hard, because our culture not only accommodates but celebrates, even encourages sexual activity outside of marriage, that does not change our biblical understanding of sex. Right? It just goes to prove that the center around which our culture is orbiting is not God. It's something else. And it goes to prove that we as a culture have, quote, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's right from our passage today. Well, what what lie, you might ask? The lie. I mean, the lie from the garden. Or as the Jesus Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, the terrible lie that the serpent whispered in Eve's ear. Maybe, just maybe, God doesn't love you and have your best interests in mind. Implication being, well, looks like I got to take things into my own hands, pursue my own interests, because no one else really even cares. Not even God. See, a cultural collapse of sexual ethics reveals that we're buying the lie. And friends, I want to submit to you that that should cause in any Christ-following person Not anger, but deep sorrow. Because the gospel is very clear. God wants to see every human being moving down the path of greatest life and flourishing. He's making us unbroken again in Jesus. He was willing to die for that cause. I mean, Jesus said he came to give us life and life to the full. When we talk about evangelism, we're talking about inviting everybody everywhere into a better life, 
a life of reconciliation with God, a life of goodness and flourishing as God intends for everyone everywhere. When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about growing and becoming more like Jesus and thus growing in our experience of the fullness of life Jesus came to give. Now, sex is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. The Bible has beautiful things to say about sex. And it has warnings like this, that sex is powerful and ripe for abuse and misuse. And sometimes all this stuff about sex in the Bible gets interpreted as God the cosmic killjoy trying to ruin our fun or prudish religious people trying to control us. And neither of those are the case. The real question is this, what is the path of greatest life and flourishing regarding our sexuality, regarding human sexuality? And the consistent biblical answer to that question is that Sexual purity matters for the very reason that it's the path of greatest life and flourishing for a human being as a sexual creature. And I can testify to this from my own experience. I have experienced sexual impurity as life degrading and sexual purity as life giving. And you know I'm telling the truth. That is true. We have experienced that. And that is what this text is saying. Right? What, what sexual purity means biblically is saving sexual activity for marriage where it can be expressed in a full and unhindered way in the context of a covenant relationship. As much as it might be exciting to think about, that's just where it works best. God has said that. Uh, this was a really interesting week for me in, in preparing this, you know, this passage. Um, more conversation than I can ever remember in the, in the run-up to a sermon about, oh man, that, that passage? It's going to be that text? Oh my, be, be careful. You know, this, oh man, that's hard to read. I don't know, what are you going to do? Oh, s- some warnings to tread lightly, you know? I don't know, I, I kind of take a different tack on all that. I mean, while it might be hard to kind of prepare, isn't it part of my job to help us, to invite us as a whole church to sit at the feet of difficult texts? I mean, it's not, the ideas aren't mine, or this is the Bible, and we just have to grapple with it. And I am firmly, firmly convinced that within the church, we can do that in a way that builds unity and does not subtract from it. Even if at the end of the, the day, some people don't completely agree on something. Right? Now, friends, there, there, there is no getting around the reality of this passage, right? An apostle of the church uses same-sex sexual activity to illustrate sinful sexual impurity. That's just there, and we should not act like it's not. At the same time, Paul is using this as an example of sexual impurity with the point being that a false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex which leads to a misuse of sex which leads to life diminishment not life flourishing. And that would be bad because God wants everybody to have the greatest life and flourishing that they can. Jesus came to give us life and life to the full. And, and when we trade God for an idol, it's not just that we have a false understanding of sex, uh, but, but we begin to see a complete breakdown in the social order of the world. 
Furthermore, says the apostle, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And when we trade God for an idol, the wheels fall off the bus of human society. It just comes undone. We do what ought not to be done. We invent ways of doing evil. Noodle on that one for a little bit. We use the the way in which we've been created in God's image as co-creative creatures with our Father in heaven. And we take that aspect of our image bearerness and we invent ways to do more evil. (laughs) That's how bad it is. I mean, in in, in this hour that we've been in worship, I wonder what happened in our world. You ever ponder this? I mean, how many prostitutes were solicited? How many hateful words were spoken with greedy intent to harm? How many were physically abused? Verbally abused? Used in some other way for the personal gain of another? In this hour, just this hour now, how many followed through on their prior decision to kill another human being? How many children went without food though they desperately needed to survive? How many decisions were made to be unfaithful to a spouse? How many cheated, embezzled, or stole? How many were on the receiving end of racial prejudice and hate? How many families were abandoned by those with power to help. How many children were kidnapped for the purpose of the international sex trade? A weak view of sin simply will not do to understand how good the good news is, we have to understand how bad the bad news is. And can you imagine this world? What it looks like from God's vantage point? Sometimes I find myself wondering if another flood might not be a mercy. Yet, says the scripture, God's patience is intended to lead us to salvation. Our passage today is just, it's all dark. But it's in the context of a larger letter that reminds us that at the very moment we were most offensive to God, completely depraved, inventing evil, having traded God for an idol, and and conceiving all sorts of wrongdoing, engaging it, approving of it, and cheering it on, right at that moment, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And I want you to feel this. Don't point the finger at other people. This is me, this is you. Right at that moment, Jesus gave all of himself to reclaim all of us, to make us entirely whole and unbroken again in his sight. By grace, through faith, to declare us to be right again.
That's the God. What kind of love is this? As, as we close today, we're going to close in a, a, a type of corporate confession. I'd like to invite the, the band and team to come up to lead us in that. And we're going to take a few minutes in confession uh, before God, acknowledging all these realities of which the apostles spoke and God's great goodness in rescuing us from them.